You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael. Andre, what's going on? In that uh, whole realm of us saying that we're going to um, get our crap together this year, be more professional and more organized and get better guests, we are doing just that. Are we? Uh, yes, we are joined by Paul Kay. He is the uh, owner of the original Wine of the Month Club. He's tasted over a hundred thousand wines, which I think you've today, probably tasted. Yeah, you've probably today, tasted. You've probably tasted that many wines. I don't think I've tasted quite that many wines in in my career yet. But you are also the host of uh, Wine Talks with Paul Callum Carrion. How did I do on the last Paul name? K. Paul Kay. The rest is silent. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so we'll do the rest that. silent. You've been kind enough to have us on your podcast twice now, and we haven't had you formally on ours. I think we just uh, stole the feed of our interview yeah, from you. Yeah, we stole it. Yeah. And did that lazily. Um, but we thought it'd be interesting to talk to someone who, you sell You sell a lot of wine, right? We do. We do actually sell. But I've been tapping my foot ever since the first podcast when you said I'm going to have you, when you set up, you'd have me on, so. Well, I was letting Michael take care of that. And, Three uh, years of foot tapping. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know it was my responsibility. You're the one it's who set this here. up. You're the one who set this it. up. I, I was usually uh, I was usually local guests. I thought you were international guests. I guess I have to take over the international clientele, <laughs> too, now. <clears throat> Um, you know, one thing I thought it'd be interesting to dive into, because I know on, on our podcast, we've been diving a little bit more into um, the marketing side of how things work. And, um, you know, Michael and I have been very critical and lamenting quite a bit. If, if you want to listen to some of the episodes that have really gotten us fired up, if you're new to this podcast, listen to us talk about wine scoring. Mm-hmm. Um, I started scoring wines, I guess, nearly a decade ago, and that came kicking and screaming after I was doing a weekly wine segment on a, a local talk radio station. And agents started asking for scores because our monopoly, they actually ask for scores to put wines on the shelves. And frankly, it just makes things easier to sell wines. And um, I use a star system. Michael uses a star system. Uh, you know, three and a half is a good wine. Four is a, a great wine. Four and, and up to five. And I think in my entire career, I've given out maybe a half dozen five star scores, maybe maybe 10 max. I, I also went kicking and screaming into the scoring range. I didn't want to get into... I, I didn't think wine was an essay, so I didn't think you should be giving it like anything that's got numbers in it. That's why stars, right? So it's good. It's very good. It's excellent. It's outstanding. That's that's what the star system means to me. It doesn't translate to batting math anyway. So it doesn't matter. It's gonna and it's yeah. It's gonna change. Uh, you know, within a year, two years, anyway. So whatever I give it today is not gonna matter. You know, whatever. You just you're just hoping it it uh, it translates into. How long it's going to live in the bottle? I guess. I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, thanks for having me on. For one, two. Yes, I have tasted over a hundred thousand wines, and that's Today. only because thirty-two years ago, every Tuesday, my dad said, "Hey, you're going to taste wines on Tuesday." That's when I did it at the wine shop, so you do it. And you know, we average fifty to seventy-five kids, uh, kids of people a day that come in every Tuesday. I've never missed a Tuesday unless I was sick or out of out of town. And even that's then, I still tasting wine. And all of a sudden, I look back thirty-two years later. Oh my goodness. It's been a hundred thousand wines, and we've sold well over twenty million bottles of wine. Well, nice. So, in, in the way it started, actually, my father and I went to a tasting together after I worked for him for a few months. When it was a Bordeaux tasting, twenty-five wines. We got separated, so we we're in different rooms. And our scoring system at the time, and still is, 
My vendors don't know this because they will look over my shoulder when I make my notes. One, can't use it overpriced, unpalatable. Two, can use it at the price that they've offered it for. We think it's good value. And three was probably taste better if the price came down. So, <laughs> and so we we were off only by two in this one Bordeaux tasting uh, that we had scored differently. So he goes, you know, I think you're ready to, to take this on. And we've used that same system ever since. But here's the difference. And I just had this conversation with James Suckling recently at a tasting. And he wants to come on the show and defend his scoring system. Oh, I want to hear that. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I know what his scoring system is. It starts at 90. That's got to be what it is. It doesn't... uh, That's a really good point. That's a really good point. But I don't know why people don't... If that's what they're doing, then I'm fine with that. As long as people come out and tell you that. Don't tell me you're on a 100-point system, but you never give a score an 89. Which is still a good score. Right. It's exactly right. I was just going to say it's really a 20-point system across the yes. board, right? Because no one's going to talk about their 81. No. Right. Yeah. Who's going to talk about it? I mean, I'm sure they give something out, but... Well, I even, so still, you, I uh, see, I even still remember um, great wine writer Gord Stimmel. Um, and, and I still in Ontario. Just, in Ontario. He was the wine writer for the Toronto Star, which is one of Canada's great newspapers. Like, I'd say on... Not for wine lately, but you yes. Know, but anyway. I mean, but I mean, reputa- reputationally, sort of. I, I guess I'd say it's the equivalent of like Canada's New York Times. Um, he he published an, a, um, a, a profile of a local winery that's mucking around with the Passamento wines, and there was a wine that you and I had both scored four stars. Uh, David Larson of Wine Align, another well-known wine critic, had scored at ninety points, and he went into the Toronto Star and published it as an eighty-five. And the thing is, his his write-up was actually decent, but. It was almost like he was making a statement by publishing an 85-point score. And I think that's the last time we've probably seen an 85-point score published well, he, in, the, in he, the Toronto Star. He didn't Star. like the style. He didn't like the Apassimento in Ontario. But he was mm. he was against it, so he, wow. he came out right. against it. What were they making with Apassimento wines with up there? Bordeaux varieties. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot. Yeah, I think, I think he was warning us. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do yeah, it. That'd be a pretty wild animal to taste that. I think it's interesting. But I mean, here, here in Ontario, the, the problem is that our, our liquor board, uh, just to fill Paul in a little bit here, goes out and looks for the highest score. So it promotes the highest score in their mm-hmm. little vintages magazine that comes out every two weeks. And uh, the, the newest one is this guy from Italy, Luca Moroni, who has tasted more wines that have scored 99 than I've ever tasted in my life. And Half the time I'm wondering what they're what's the one thing that they're missing that makes him give them a 99, and the other one, the other side of me goes, "You're full of, you know." Yeah, thanks, Michael, for pulling it back. So, I mean, do you, you think it's a necessary evil because mm. the way the way we go ahead. I, I was actually going to flip. I, you, I think you're going to ask the question to us that I want to ask you though, because you sell a lot of wine through. No, let through, them let them let through, them ask your it business. Though, but let, but let me ask you though, how yeah. important is it or or was it okay? This is gonna be a two part question. Was it ever important nope, that stop, scores stop, were? Stop, Andre, stop. No, I want Paul to ask his question first. It's five you write yours part. down. If he doesn't dollars. ask it, he's the guest. Let him ask this. I'm interested. <laughs> okay, fine, fine, fine. I'll behave. <laughs> well, flip it around. Yeah, I mean, it's a necessary evil because the consumer doesn't know any better. We had that conversation last time, yes. which is do they really understand? But here's here's the problem I have. The other day I tasted, I use this example all the time, a Listron Negro from the Canary Islands. And I'd never had that wine. I freaked over. I thought it was fabulous, volcanic, the whole thing. And it, and it had 95 points. All right, so if I'm a point buyer, 
And I walk into the wine shop, and there's a Cabernet from Napa that's 95 points. These are two worlds that are two wines that are diametrically opposed to each other. They have nothing to do with each other, except that they're maybe maybe similar in color, but not really. So I'm going to be disappointed in one of these. Unless I've got a really educated palate, I'm going to say, wow, this is really great for Napa, but I don't know, what is this least on Negro thing? I can't drink it, or vice versa. So is that a fair presentation for the consumer to see the points and just judge on the points? Well, how do we get... How do we get consumers to think about more than just points, though, right? Because the the like the the pyramid of like consumers, the number of consumers who are just go into the shop and look to grab something and are looking for a special occasion wine are going to probably grab the first thing that's ninety five points. We'll probably completely gloss over the Canary Island wine because they're just like I've never heard of the Canary Islands. I'm going to go straight to Napa Valley and grab that because I know it. I've heard of it. I'm familiar with it. Uh, it's been but on, TV, on, on the other hand, it, it may come down to price, right? And I don't know how much well. Canary Island wise versus the Napa. Napa, I would assume, so would be very expensive. Although I don't Napa, know how much Canary wine is. That's an important piece of information that has to be included in the ratings. That's not, and it, yep. it is here because that's how I sell my wines. I have thirteen dollars wines, twenty dollars wines, thirty dollars whatever. My rating, which I have tons of, nothing gets into my club unless it's got a rating of ninety-five by me or ninety-four or something by me only. Wow. Okay. My rating is different. My rating is of all the $20 Sauvignon Blancs, this is the one that's worth the best value. This is 94 points. This one's 80 points, whatever it is. But that's the $20 Sauvignon Blancs, or the $15 red blends, or the, or the or the $50 Cabernets from Napa. Amongst its peers, this is the best value. So if you come to my shop and you go, oh, yeah, I want a Napa cab, here are the ones I think were the best representation of what they're supposed to be. That's the most important part, I think. But and I get complaints. You rated this wine ninety five, and I saw that you know the spectator gave it a two, and I'm like, well, <laughs> that's the difference. There's a difference between the way the spectator looks at it and I do. Yeah. And of course, we're all going to go to the point where, well, I'll just check the spectator's ads and see which one's got the biggest page, and we'll find out who's got the best scores. That's always been, of course, a problem with with well, most periodicals. I'm like Robert Parker, but here, this you had to ask a very important question. The answer is probably not very black and white and is how do we get the consumer to understand that there's there's this value in a glass of wine beyond the points and i think for the consumer they have at least some kind of comfort level that somebody has tasted wine and is not they're not going to get ripped off because it's such an emotional decision wine is an emotional decision it's not like buying a widget where you get on amazon and find the cheapest person that makes the cheapest widget you look for the stuff that's going to make you feel the best and I really think that comes from the story, from telling authentic stories. You know, Martha Stewart Chardonnay is not an authentic story. You know, Snoop Dogg's Cali Red is not an authentic story. But you if you could Snoop doesn't story, drink a lot of wine? I don't know, but he sells a ton. <laughs> <laughs> Which I still don't get. I still, don't, I still don't understand why Snoop hasn't just made like a canned gin and juice. Like you would not be able to keep that on the shelf. That's a really great point. I don't know. Anyways. We didn't even talk about we haven't talked about canned cocktails yet because that's a, another big burgeoning market. But I just think that consumers, if they understood the stories, they'll have that aha moment. They'll start realizing that really there's history in wine, and the historical value of a glass of wine is everything about that glass. You know, if you knew, you know, what the Germans did in France during the war and how they pillaged cellars and how those winemakers went through hell to keep their cellars working and uh, you know, uh, phosphorus-loaded cannon shells landing in, in champagne have destroyed vineyards that still they still can't grow on. That is history. 
that you don't taste necessarily in the bottle, but it has to be influenced by the people that are making it. And well, I yeah, think there's some great different. books written about that, and 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 you read Judgment of Paris, and you but know, you've talked French about war on wines, and okay, things but you've, like that. You've talked great, about great books. You've you've talked about selling this the story as well, though. I mean, that's the fun thing about being a wine personality is we care enough about this that we've got microphones and hopefully have an audience, and it's not just my mm -hmm. mom listening to this, but also. You know, we're sharing our own stories of our own adventures. And the other thing, too, it's really important when you cultivate an audience and you get yourself in a position of selling millions of dollars or sorry, millions of bottles of wine or Michael and I having chosen to write about this and not sell millions of bottles of wine <laughs> that we know of, but that we build your route, actually, <laughs> but we but we build trust that you build trust with an audience. The thing is, knowing your That's rating right. system and you explaining your rating system to me, Paul, I know that if I subscribe to your wine club, that when I see the scoring system, it's going to be consistent and I can trust you. Uh, I know that that was sort That's of a, a, a little bit really of a, 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 I guess in terms of like building that trust. So have you found that your scores have been dipping up? You've been doing this for a while. If you audited your scores from 10 years ago, are, are your scores higher than they were or have they stayed the, the same? And do you feel pressure to go higher, you know, because you have people like James Suckling to compete with? It's a really good question, and I'm so proud of the answer because it doesn't really matter. I'm still rating them. I'm really rating them against themselves. So, but the question is really: is have things gone up or down in general for what you've been tasting? I can tell you that the way wine is bought and sold in America today has created some pretty inferior stuff, and I taste a lot more crap today than I did before hmm. and we feature we have to be very careful about stuff that's brought to us because like I was, we were talking about uh celebrity based wines we were talking about baseball wines you know the stuff is not that good because some and I'm not going to say that bulk wine is not good because so much of wine in America maybe 90% of wine is not bottled by the people that grow it so that's just an important fact to know so if you want to call that bulk wine or shiners or white labels or you know private labels that's okay it doesn't matter there are some very good wines that are made that way but when you're bringing stuff in from Europe at 50 cents a liter and putting it under fancy labels and trying to sell it to the public, and I don't know if you've seen seen those in, in Canada, you know, you start to create a bad image in people's minds. And they, they, they only get burned once or twice. Well, let me tell you a story. We were talking about something here. I had a, a drinks.com, not drinks.com, a punchdrink.com. She came in, wine writer, sat with me for four hours tasting wine on Tuesday. And in between vendors, I opened a case of wine from one of my competitors who was sending me wine for, for us to sample. And I didn't look at the label. And I know you guys love Beaujolais. Okay. So this was a 2019 Beaujolais. This was around 2020. So it was current vintage. And it was horrible. It was a village. It was horrible. And she goes, this is terrible. I said, yeah. And I didn't realize what it was, but I rolled it over. And it was Saturday night. I can't even say this. Saturday night live Beaujolais. What? What a weird yes. brand partnership. Saturday Night Live, Beaujolais. So now I'm thinking this poor person who watches Saturday Night Live, whatever they used it for, and goes, I'm going to buy this, and maybe we'll watch the show together, and then it's terrible. Now, now you've got to now you got to remember Saturday Night Live is on at 11:30 at night. It is on Saturday, <laughs> and so by then you're probably at least a bottle or two in, and you always pour your worst bottle as That's the true. third bottle of the night, right? That's so. True. Maybe um thinking you no know, there you go it, they have it, it doesn't matter what you pour as long as you just try to get the people out of the house right i you know there was a brand at one time called first second and third bottle it was the same winery <laughs> and, and the wines got not as good as you went down the line and that was the whole prop the whole premise of what you just said 
drink this one first, and the second one's not as quite as good, and the third one you don't care. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. So it's Saturday Night Live wine. All Makes right. sense but, to me now. So James Suckling, when I was talking to him, I said, you know, I want you to come on the show, and I want you to talk about the point system. He goes, yeah, we have a very peculiar one. You know, I have six people tasting for me now, and we were on the same page. We we're averaging 20,000 bottles a year or something. I forgot the number. But I said, no, I, I think we need to talk about this. I think we need to tell the listeners what it means when a suckling rating comes out and what, um, how you guys arrive at that, particularly when there's more than one person doing it. I think that's fantastic. I think that's, I, I mean, that, I, that let me seg, seg, lets me segue to sort of the next question. One of the things that Michael and I have really been lamenting um, and, you know, kind of curious about because I'm cautiously optimistic. I love what's happening on Instagram for the most part because it's giving people the ability to connect with very little wine knowledge and share it with other people and share their enthusiasm for wine. And hopefully when you find people who have a little bit of that journalistic muscle, whether they know it or not, you get to follow their journey and learn with them. Um, you know, the the woman that I do my radio show with is one of those people. And the reason I do the radio show with her is because she's got that journalistic instinct. But trust with an audience is so... Like it's, I'm I'm skeptical of everything. In Canada, influencers don't need to disclose when they're paid, which is hugely problematic because you can follow someone that you think their content is genuine. They pick up ten thousand followers, and all of a sudden, the type of content changes, and you don't know whether or not they're doing it because they genuinely like the product or they're being paid. I guess it's a long-winded way of me saying is it just like do does the next generation of wine writers have the ability to build that trust with their audience and are things different in the States where we're seeing a, a wine journalist, a wine journalism group of people that can maintain that trust with their audience. You know, in that wine is such a unique product. It's totally different than anything else. I think all this influence stuff is going to implode. And I'll tell you why I think that I've interviewed a lot of them. And some are very brilliant, some are very good, some are just really stupid. You know, the, the whole concept is like, how do you become an influencer, and what does that mean to me? They 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 trade, you know, exposure for wine or whatever they get from me. I never pay them anything. They they're luck. I feel I, I fa- frank, frankly feel they're lucky to be on the show because they're getting more exposure than than I'm getting. But if you look really close at those numbers. And I just learned this recently by watching my own viral videos, which I'll tell you what they are. 99% of the people, maybe half of them anyway, don't even apply. They're like in Lithuania or Russia or India, or they don't, they're not even, they may be following you, but they have nothing to do with the wine trade. They don't really care. You're not going to sell anything to these people. And I learned this because I posted a video on my TikTok and on Instagram and it's the simplest thing you've ever seen. It's a, a very good friend of mine, Don Schliff, opening a bottle of port with the traditional heated tongs. Cool video. No, that, that, that content is like made for that platform. That's beautiful. Yeah. I, I want to see it. So no no music. You may hear James Suckling cackling in the background. And and it's and it's like 40 seconds. It's gotten 4.5 million views on TikTok with 150,000 likes. And it's gotten a million and a half views on Instagram and 18,000 likes. Do you think I didn't sell anything? I didn't sell a single bottle from that. Okay, fine. That's okay. I didn't do it for that. But I was watching that. They 
so-and-so liked you, so-and-so liked it. Some of it's written in Arabic. A lot of it's written in Russian. And I'm like, thinking to myself, wow, these influencers really, you know, we don't know. We don't know where they're from and where they've been and what they're doing. Okay, but this is the be- this is the thing where I say I'm cautiously optimistic is the good influencers will will put their cards down in front of you. There's a, a few in, in Ontario where I've spoken to them because I work in marketing at my day job. A good influencer, if you want to do business with them, you will be like, influencer, I've got 50 cases of Snoop's wine that I would like to sell and I want it to be in the market. <laughs> Can you share your analytics with me? Show me your audience. Show me where they are. Show me when they engage. If they are hesitant to do that, they they are they don't they don't give a crap about what it is they're doing. A good influencer will be like, "Here's my rate card. Here's the demographics. My audience is women aged eighteen to thirty four. They are located in North America with twenty percent in Europe and ten percent in Russia. Like they will be able to give you the breakdown. Those are, right. the good influencers are the ones who treat it like a business and do it as such. But that being said, influencers are not journalists and that's the, the, the problem that i have is where that line being line is blurred influencers play a very important role in marketing and moving product um as long as you as the person with the product to move does your due diligence to make sure you're hiring a good influencer but is is, is lifestyle content just dead is wine writing dead like should we all just pack it in and, and give up like should michael and i just give up no the the the, the influencers i've done that are that are been interesting uh, that I've reached the most audience that I when I post podcasts that have the most to say to me when I talk to them have an objective in life they have an opinion in life of wine whether people of color or women in wine or uh, natural whatever the subjects we're just talking about if they have a true opinion and they know how to write which is kind of rare these days um, those are the people that people are listening to the other people will just fade away if you're just if you're going to the market and buying stuff off the shelf and and showing labels on, a, on his Instagram and saying, I love this. This is worthless. No one's going to pay attention to that. Eventually it's going to, you're going to lose that audience because no one's going to care. But when you, when you stimulate somebody's thought process and you inspire them, people want to be educated. They want to be entertained and they want to be inspired. That's why your and tongue video. Can do that. That's why your tongue video performed so well. Like what, what, you, what do you, you have as far as, as, as wine journalism down in, in California, I guess let's start there. Like what is like we have a monopoly system and they are slowly but surely choking off uh, wine journalism here in Ontario by not allowing wine writers to to access the products anymore like they used to. Really? Um, oh yeah, but James Suckling is very prominently displayed on the shelves of the LCBO because you need to submit scores to get a listing. But you, but but you, and Luca Maroni, he's all over Italy. Like it's just unbelievable. I've never seen a scar lower than ninety five, and I've seen tons by uh, ninety nine. But what do you have as far as uh, uh, journalism down there? Uh, it's a wide open book. It's whatever you want it to be. I had a guy in here that wrote a book. Uh, anybody can write a book on wine if you're intelligent. This guy wrote a book. It's the 52 weeks of wine. And he recommends a particular bottle of wine and what it should go with. He's very crass. His language is pretty rough. Uh, he's a master of wine candidate. He just wrote a book. Um, it's actually a fabulous story what he's done. Uh, the guy that writes my newsletter for me, he's, I think, one of the most creative wine writers around. He, his career uh, didn't go where it could have gone uh, for whatever reason. Um, I communicate with Dan Berger regularly. Uh, my, when my father, th- this patch I'm wearing on my jacket um, from Les Amis Devant, which is an old uh, wine enthusiast group from the U.S., uh, used to be 100 chapters or more. Uh, 
incredible thing. This, and I think I'm going back to this. I actually resurrected the brand and I trademarked it. You know, they used to have dinners and Nathan Cromwell would show up in LA Times and, you know, Dan Berger would show up and, and Robert Mondavi would come down from Napa to speak to groups. And that was where, you know, you got that handshake and you got that personal experience of wine. It has to be that. And I think the good journalists are the ones that can create that trust, write to the people that, that you know, as far as writing their, their style, to tell the stories, to inspire one to try something new. And I'll tell you a funny story. I was in the market the other day with my social networker. woman came up. She was looking at the wall. I said, what are you looking for? She said, oh, I want to buy something other than what I usually buy. I go, what do you usually buy? She said, Jay Lore. I said, okay. I go, here's a few wines. I'm in the big, I go, I'm in the trade. Here's a few wines with the same price range. It'd be something different, but my my stimulate your palate. She walked away. <laughs> so <laughs> so I told her, and she came back and we talked some more, and we realized we knew each other from Little League. Still didn't buy anything that I recommended. And I thought to myself, what an interesting thing. She knows I'm in the business and she didn't choose anything. She was looking for that shelf talker that may have had a set of points on it. She didn't care that I was telling her or not. So I think it's an important thing. Totally. And that's, it's important to look at it for people to at least feel like there's some comfort level. And if you, if you, if you find James Suckley's wine really, uh, you know, attuned to your palate, then that's what you follow. Right? And that's what it comes down to. But he told me in, at this tasting that his followship, followship, is that what it is? <laughs> went through the roof during the pandemic, as did sales for wine yeah. in America. But Canada too. It was interesting to hear that followership, you know, of his, uh, or let's see, membership to his uh, his newsletter had gone through the roof. Yeah, I, I, you know what? I remember going uh, on a on a, a tour of Australia, and I, I ended up going into to one of the wineries, and I was looking at their their menu, and they had all James Suckling's, <laughs> uh, you know, all his scores ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven. And I and I happily got to, to to sit with the winemaker and taste, and I was like, "So, what do you think of all of this uh, suckling stuff?" And she goes, "I think he's full, of <laughs> but it sells wine." <laughs> that's that's a quote. So that's so, and I and I really appreciated that because that's a that's a winemaker that doesn't buy into the hype. She realizes that you know he's trying to sell his stickers and his scores. Um, you know, she's trying to sell wine and if he can help her sell wine, absolutely fantastic. She doesn't believe anything that he's saying here. Maybe his tasting note is correct, but she thinks his scoring's out of whack, but you know, and she's willing to admit that, which I thought was, was great because I have been to other wineries and you go, uh, you know, you'll see 96 and they go, I think his score is too low. And you're like, I think he's too high. But I mean, that's it though. The, the tastes are subjective. I think that's why I asked the questions the way I, I asked them because like Paul, you said that your wines are like 94, 95 points, which is something that Michael and I would still think are are pretty high in terms of the scores, but you built up an audience, you've built up a wine club, you've built up trust, and then you've built up consistency with your with your audience. And it's just like, my question isn't about the, the scores because it's clear that like you said, that it's it's sort of irrelevant at, at this point. It's about building the trust with the trust with the audience and i guess i don't know it's a thing where i guess people just don't care about us scoring wines at four stars when other people can score them 95 96 points and is this something where maybe michael you and i need to think about adapting i think i really i really don't know where to go myself on that but paul i do have a question for you you say you taste 
what about 50 wines every Tuesday? Is that correct? At least, yeah. Okay. So let's say you've got um, just just for you know S's and giggles here. Um, let's just say that you've got a table full of Sauvignon Blanc. You got 50 Sauvignon Blanc in front of you. Are you looking for a 95 wine, or does the 95 wine have to, you know, that has to speak to you? Like, are you hoping to get something out of that table of wine and you're, you, you've got to buy something off of that? Or, mm-hmm. or are you going to, you could, you could get rid of all 50 and not even, not have one on your, on your menu? No, I, I can go a whole day, score everything a one. Okay. All right. That's happened before. I mean, it, no, it's got to stand on its own. Okay. It has to stand on some for what it is. I, there's a lot of wines that come; they're pretty good, but they're just red wine or white wine. They don't really speak to the terroir or the, the grape, and that's the main objective. Like if I send you a Sonoma cab, this is going to be a pretty good representation of Sonoma, say Alexander Valley. Then, then it's the one next to it for the price, and that's what the score means. It's not like a relative score that you see on a shelf talker. It's relative amongst the wines I've tasted to them. But here's a here's a thought that I that I give some only the intellectual. Uh, podcast guests and or people I speak with. I'm going to fail this test. That makes you intellectual. (laughs) Andre's not a good test. I get great answers. I'm trying to, I have to frame this question properly so that the answer is not dealing with things. But if there was no profit, let me put it this way. When when Burgundy was appellating itself uh, in the 20s, they're adding an appellation. One of the wine, one of the vendors said, we should not allow ourselves to advertise, like put it in the code, put it in the Appalachian code. You can't advertise because we make good wine. They're going to come to us to drink it. All right. So you take that thought a little further. What if, what if profit was nothing to do with wine? What if we didn't have to make a profit? What if we made the best we could make in the vineyard that we could put on the shelf for people to take? What if it was not important to be profit? Would we have a different industry? Would there, would there be rankings? Would there be scores? That's a very good question. It's a tough one. Um, yes, because I, mean, I mean, it's 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 the thing yes. where, like, on on the surface, as like when you, I think you reach like a level of wine love where you look at these appellation systems, like the Grand Cru and Premier Grand Cru, and you just think, okay, this were these were the French people. They were surely just trying to celebrate the the best and most consistent regions. And you take a step back, and it's just like, even then, in in eighteen sixties, when that first. Um, first ranking was done though follow the money like there was money involved in that and there was money that was that was there and it's he's, not saying he's, that, what he's saying andre is that there was no money would there be scores i know but i'm, I'm just i'm just i'm just it's i don't know how we can answer that because it's so I intertwined in easily. the business we're humans of course there's scores there were there's always going to be scores we're always going to rank something as human beings we want to give things labels which is why we taste wine and we give and we and we talk about it instead of just saying it's red wine. We say it's got cherry and blackberry and chocolate and licorice. We've got to give it a label. We mm. have to. We can't mm. just say it's red wine. We have to describe it. And then as as um and then at some point you're going to rank them. You're going to taste four, five, six, fifty, a hundred, and you're going to go. No, no, this one's the best I've ever had. And whether it's going to be a score or a list of the top hundred you've ever tasted, it wouldn't matter. If there was no profit, it doesn't matter. You're still going to rank it. Because you know what? We probably all have a list of our favorite meals that we've ever had in our lifetime. There's no money in that for you, but you've probably got them listed in your head. Oh, you know what? That burger at that one place was the best burger I ever had. 
And you can go, you know, my top three burgers in my life were blah, blah, blah. You know where I had the best French fries? Blah, blah, blah. Same thing with wine. These would be my best wines. We may not say this is the 100-point wine. that may never have come to that. But there is always going to be a ranking of some sort because we're human beings. And we have got to tell somebody that we liked something better than something else. Did Michael get the right answer? Did Michael get the right answer? Well, no, there's no answer. I suppose that's accurate. And I was thinking about what you said because we went to dinner in, in Yonville and we went to, I'm not going to say what it is because it's not fair. No, no, say and it. Say it. It was fun. It was a French restaurant. It was fun. We had a good time. But wait, was it the all- was it the French restaurant? No. Okay. I'm okay with it then. We've been there a couple times. But the meat, you can, it, you know, it was prepared right, but you could tell that the meat was inferior meat, right? And then we went, the next night we went to Bottega, which I will say the name, and the same meat, it was the same dish. It was incredible. And it was just the quality of the beef. And I okay, this guy over here is buying less quality because he's paying less because he wants to make more money. And it didn't taste as good. It was obvious it was the structure of the meat, not the dish. And this other guy is like willing to, willing to put up a little more money to get better meat to taste better. So if I think that if wine had not been profit, there's no profit in wine, you would try to make the best expression of where it comes from and what's in it what the grape is and what you're able to get out of the vineyard, which is most, you know, most winemakers, that's what they try to do, but they're yeah. bound by all the problems, all the issues and money being brought from. So then if that happened and you went to the shelf and you're getting pure representation of what it is, then you're, then you're going to rank it at that point. I agree with yeah. my club. Yeah. You're going to rank it at that point because we're going to have different palates, but at least it's on a level playing field of quality. Like this is the best value I could. This the best wine that came from Charme Chamotin or whatever. That so th- there's no correct answer. I just wondered how the industry would be different, and would we get better wines? And I think that I, would be the I, case. I, I would. I wish it would be different, but I would tell you this: it would. It would sooner even even in your utopian world, sooner or later, it would <laughs> it would evolve into what it is now. Do you know what I mean? Everybody would start uh, yeah, by so. doing <laughs> the great things that they're doing, and then some guy would figure out a way to just cut a corner a little okay, bit. So, so, so to make guess... himself a little bit more money to make <laughs> to right. use inferior meat. Right. Okay, now, so now... and next thing you know, he's selling his wine at twenty bucks, and the other guys. Okay, so know, now as, as as we're getting to the point where I think it's time to to, to start <laughs> wrapping things up, I think we're just this is the key fundamental difference between Michael and I, although it hurts when I, I agree with Michael in this case, it's just like, I'd like to believe that there's a world where it's a little more optimistic and that the, the drive behind making wine is making great wine for great wine's sake and not to make a dollar. But I'm, I hate that Michael is correct. Paul, how can people, how can people find you? And I really need you to throw out your social media handles. Cause I really want to see that video of someone opening a bottle of port with the hot tongs. It's, um, well, first of all, the podcast is Wine Talks with Paul K. It's available on all podcast platforms. Uh, it's also at winetalkspodcast.com, where they're all there. And I have crazy guests like you do. I mean, like crazy people like Kevin O'Leary, who's Mr. Who Wonderful and, and from Ontario. I, I, we haven't had him on the podcast yeah. before, but I, I've interviewed him. Michael, have you interviewed him? Uh, I actually inventoried his wine cellar. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, I did. All this, uh, you know, because he's a confrere chevalier type of guy, you know. And it's, so I, I will tell you this because we get off. I I offered him a case of Grand Cru Burgundy to host to post my my podcast on his social, and he didn't do it. Oh wow! Um, 
Really? Um, the Wine of the Month Club on TikTok, Wine of the Month on Twitter, Wine of the Month Club on Instagram. I'm looking forward to seeing that, and unfortunately, because of our 43rd parallel border, we can't subscribe to your Wine of the Month Club, the original Wine of the Month Club. Paul, do you have a shop as well, or is it just all online? No, we have have a great shop shop here, and we actually have tastings here, we have a tasting room. All right, let's give a shout out to that. We've got to do a trip. Yeah, let's do a road trip down to your shop. Where is the shop located? It's in Pasadena, you know, the, the Rose Bowl and... The Rose Parade, we're just a mile or two down the road from there. Right on. Right. Well, and oh, I, wait a minute. We're, we're even closer to the San Anita racetrack, which I know you guys are horse buff. So, are we? <laughs> are we? No. You parlay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Andre Peru from underwinereview.ca at underwinereview on social media, patreon.com slash two guys talking wine. Check the show notes, which is something I've learned from my time at Canada Land to get people to actually help pay to keep this podcast on the air. We appreciate the support. I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. You can find me on social media as The Great Guy, sometimes as Michael Pincus Winerview, and sometimes as Michael Pincus. I haven't, I haven't, uh, yeah, you haven't consolidated. Make sure you subscribe to Wine Talks with Paul Case. You can listen to our episode with him. We had as much fun there as I'm hope I'm hoping he did with us. I mean, he said he's going to have us back, and Paul, sure. we're definitely going to have you back because I learned a bunch of stuff. I think we got deeper into the philosophy of scoring than I thought. Anyways, Michael, take us away. Love it. Well, it's uh, it is uh, dark outside, uh, so it's only fair to say good night. This uh, is over. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.